let me welcome you into week number three. I mentioned that we are in the middle of this uh, Brookstone family Christmas. And so uh, during these weeks, we are considering from the scriptures every Sunday morning the voices of Christmas. And this is week number three as we're leaning into the scriptures and listening closely to the voices that are speaking around the nativity and the birth of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we began by talking about the voice of preparation. Do you remember that? The voice of preparation. And we listened to the voice of Zacharias. This was the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, who spoke prophetically over his newborn son, John, and said of him, you will be the one that will go before the Messiah and prepare his way. And then later, John affirmed that when he grew and began his earthly ministry, when John, when questioned by the Pharisees, he was asked, who are you? Why are you preaching? His answer was, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. We heard the voice of preparation, and the, and the lesson for us is we want to be prepared, prepared to receive Christ this Christmas season, and we want to be prepared for the day that Jesus will come again. It's the preparation voice. Last week, we heard the second voice. It's the voice of promise, and we heard the voice of promise in the words, in the voice of the angel Gabriel as he came and spoke to Mary in Nazareth, and he said to her, you will conceive and bear a child. And we learned that this was the voice of God's keeping his promise because uh, this was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse number 14, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. So there's the voice of preparation and then the voice of promise. Today we're going to be talking about the third voice. It is the voice of surrender. And this will be the voice of Mary. And so we're going to lean into the passage. We're going to listen uh, carefully because this voice might be a quiet voice, a timid voice, even the humble voice of Mary. Uh, look with me, Luke chapter 1 and verse number 26. The Bible says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto the city of Galilee, or a city in Galilee named Nazareth. You know, every single year when we uh, load up a group of pilgrims here from Brookstone and around western North Carolina, and we get on an airplane, we fly across to the Holy Land, and we land in Tel Aviv, and we come out of the airport and we get on a bus, and that bus begins a 10-day journey of taking us uh, on this route through the, the land of Israel, and we walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And one of the first places that we visit every time we, we make this trip is the city of Nazareth. It's one of the highlights of our tour for a number of reasons. Um, one of the things that people are often surprised about when we visit Nazareth, because we view Nazareth uh, historically and biblically as this quaint and quiet little town, and it's not that at all today. In fact, Nazareth is one of the largest and busiest cities in the Galilee, really in, in the entire country of Israel. Um, it is a population now in Nazareth of about 80,000 people. So it's almost as big as the city of Asheville, if you can imagine. And interestingly, Nazareth today is a completely Arab city. There aren't, there's, there's no Jewish presence at all 
uh, in the city of Nazareth. It's mostly a Muslim city, although there certainly are a number of Arab Christians there as well. But it is a completely Arab city. 2,000 years ago, it wasn't that. 2,000 years ago, it was a Jewish village, and it had no size at all. It was a tiny, little, insignificant village with a very, very humble reputation. In fact, let me read to you. You don't have to turn. I'll read it to you from John chapter number 1, where you'll get some insight into the way that people viewed Nazareth during the time of Jesus. I'm reading from John chapter 1, verse number 43. The Bible says, The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and he would find Philip, and he said unto Philip, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, which was the city of Andrew and Peter, who, by the way, had already been called to follow Jesus. Now uh, verse 45 says, Philip found Nathanael. Now, by the way, let me just stop and, and make a point of application here. And it is that this passage and the experience of Andrew and uh, Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, their experience is instructive to us. Because what you discover is that every one of these four men, when they meet Jesus, they go find other people who need to meet Jesus. Andrew meets him first and he goes and finds his brother Simon Peter. Then Nathaniel, or Philip rather, is called by Jesus and he goes and finds Nathaniel. Here's the lesson. People who meet Jesus, if y'all are listening, shout amen. People who meet Jesus ought to find other people who need to meet Jesus, right? This is the, this is the great commission that we are to be on, uh, on assignment, reaching people for Christ. Well, verse 45 says, Philip found Nathanael and said unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and all of the prophets did write. Now, nobody would make such a statement lightly. That's a huge, profound declaration. We have found the one that the entire Old Testament promised us would come. That's what he's saying. We have found the promised Messiah that Moses told us about and that the prophets predicted. Really? Yes, we found him. What's his name? Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel would have never expected that. Jesus of Jerusalem, maybe, but not Jesus of Nazareth. Because Nazareth was such a humble backwater, insignificant, lowly esteemed place that nobody expected anything great or profound, let alone the Messiah himself, to come from Nazareth. This is why Nathanael answers, hearing that it is Jesus of Nazareth, he answers in verse 46 and says to him, can there any good thing come from Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. And so the point is that Nazareth was viewed in that day as this place that was so insignificant that nothing great or no one great could ever come from there. There are a couple of reasons why Nazareth was so insignificant and, and so tiny. One reason had to do because of travel, uh, because of trade routes. Um, there were two primary trade routes in the ancient uh, Middle Eastern world. Uh, there was the Via Mara, so the way of the sea that led from the western world to the east. And if you were sailing from Rome, let's say, or sailing from anywhere in, in Europe and you were coming across the Mediterranean and you landed in a port in the Middle East, 
then your land journey would take you most likely along the Via Mara, so the way of the sea. And it would just, it was a road that just made its way along the coast of the Mediterranean, then over the Carmel mountain range, north uh, beyond the Galilee Sea, and then over into uh, the, the uh, eastern world. That was the main trade route. There was another route, which was called the King's Highway. And that came from Egypt to the south part of Israel and then up through the Jordan Valley. But here's the point. These two trade routes went like this around the part of the world where Nazareth was. And they, they converged just north of Nazareth. And for that reason, nobody on either one of these trade routes ever passed by, ever went through Nazareth. It's rather like what happened... Uh, to Route 66. Some of you maybe have made that famous drive out Route 66 across America, which was the way to cross America prior to I-40 being built. And when I-40 being built uh, was built, all sorts of towns and businesses died along Route 66 because nobody ever came along that way anymore. What's the same thing that happened in Nazareth? So nobody was there. Nobody passed by. Nothing was happening there. Very few people lived there. Another reason that Nazareth was so uh, uh, remote and, and small is because you could almost uh, always miss the fact that it was even there. In fact, if you were traveling up the Via Maris, you would go right by Nazareth. But because of the geography of the Galilean hills, you would be going up the road here, the main uh, road, and up in these hills there would be Nazareth, but it was in a small swale or a dip. And so it's in the in the top of the hills, but down in a dip. And so you could go right by it, and you would never know that you were passing it by. And because of that, Nazareth was this tiny little backwater village. And in the days of Mary and Joseph, there were no more than three, maybe 400 people who lived in that village. Well, I mentioned that we go there every year. And one of the reasons that we go there is because we visit the site of the only water source in Nazareth during the time of Jesus. It's a spring, and the crusaders built a church over it, and now it's a Greek Orthodox church. But we go there to just remember that this would be the place where Jesus would have come, no question, many times with his mother Mary when he was a little boy. Many people believe that the text we're going to read in Luke 1 happened in that spot where we visit every time we go at the church of Mary's well. So I want you to follow along as I read. Again, chapter 1 of Luke in verse 26. We'll read down through verse number 38. Here's what the Bible says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, tiny, little, insignificant, backwater village, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, Thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind or wondered in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, he shall be great, he shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then Mary said 
unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man, or how shall this be, I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Now lean in. Here's Mary's voice, the voice of surrender. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel Gabriel then departed from her. When you read this passage and you think about Mary being visited by the angel Gabriel, how do you envision? What, what do you think Mary looked like? What was she like? Most scriptural students and students of history believe that Mary was in all likelihood somewhere between the ages of 14 and 16 years. She might have even been a little bit younger than that. Imagine. The Bible calls her, in verse number 27, a virgin. Now, that doesn't mean that she is a virgin because she hadn't lost her virginity. It certainly means that, but it means more than that. The word virgin means that she was a young and pure, young and chaste uh, woman who was of marriageable age. And we know that marrying age or marriageable age in that culture began around the age of 12. So she might have even been as young as 12 or 13 years old. In all likelihood, she was a, a bit older than that, uh, around 14 to 16 years old. Now, we also know from verse number 27 that this young, pure uh, virgin girl who was of a, marri a marriageable age, was in fact uh, getting married. She was engaged. Verse number 27 says she was a virgin who was espoused or engaged to a man named Joseph. Now she's engaged to Joseph and the word espoused in the King James means that she was promised to. It's an engagement, but the word means pledged to or promised to. Two. Now this was, there's really no question, an arranged marriage. This is the way marriages were conducted in, the, in that culture and in those days. This was an arranged marriage. And we know very little about Joseph, but we know some important things about him. Uh, we know that Joseph was a just man, that he was a righteous man, a good and a godly man. We can also assume that uh, he was not her childhood sweetheart, that he was in all likelihood much older than her. In all, in all likelihood, uh, perhaps even twice her age or maybe even a bit older uh, than that. Now the fact is, this marriage was uh, one that was arranged and pledged and promised and this engagement period was as certain as was 
the marriage. Engagements in those days were not, hey, let's court for a while, let's date, let's go out, see if we like each other, and maybe we'll decide to get married. No, this was a promised event that would happen, and the engagement was as much of a committal as was the marriage. In fact, we could say it this way. They were in every sense of the word married, except for the fact they were not living together yet and they had not consummated the marriage. But legally and culturally and relationally, they were all but or as good as married. Now, engagements during those days would often last a year or longer. Um, And the year that uh, a couple would be engaged was spent with the groom about the business of preparing their home. And when the home would be ready, then that's when the marriage would occur. So they didn't set the date a year in advance. They didn't send out save the date uh, notices to their family and friends. Uh, They just got engaged. Then they began to prepare the home. And when the home was ready, that's when the marriage would occur. Uh, Think John 14. Can I remind you of it? John 14, Jesus said, In my Father's house there are many mansions or many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. That's marriage language. It's Jesus saying, I have married you. I'm in a relationship. I have redeemed you to myself. Now I'm going to prepare a home. And when the home is ready, I will come back and get you. The home might get finished today and Jesus could come in the rapture. Amen. But the point is they were engaged and Joseph was preparing their home until the day would come that they would be married. And while this young, pure, chaste, let's call her a 15-year-old girl, is living her life joyfully awaiting the day that Joseph will come and take her to their home and their marriage and their married life together will begin. In that season, Gabriel shows up and says to her, you're going to be pregnant and you're going to give birth to a child. Ladies, can you even imagine Can you imagine the fear and the emotion that Mary would have have felt, the trembling that must have occurred when when she gets this word from Gabriel? And I wonder, what would our answer have been? What would we have said in response to Gabriel? And I want you to hear in Mary's response today today, The voice of surrender. Write this down quickly. Number one, Mary said in response to Gabriel's announcement, she said this word, one word, she said, amen, amen. Now I told you a moment ago I was going to tell you why the word amen was so important. It's important in this context because this is what Mary spoke. Now she didn't say the word amen or amen, but she did say in verse number 38, be it unto me, or so be it unto me. And this is exactly what the word amen means. Do you know that when you say amen, can we do it again? Will you say that loud? Say it. Amen. When you say amen, you are saying truth. That's right. I affirm that. Let that be so. Let it come to pass. 
I was mentioning our trips to Israel uh, a few minutes ago. I'll never forget on one of my first trips, one of my Palestinian friends there, one of my Arab Christian friends said to me, my friend, my brother Jim, you know why we say amen and not a woman in church? We say amen, not a woman. And I said, no, no, why, Basam, why do we say amen and not a woman? And he said, because we sing hymns, not hers. <laughs> it's pretty good theology, but it's not what the word means. The word means truth. Let it be so. And when she responds to Gabriel, he says to her, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. She says, amen, let it be so. She gave him her amen. I want you to think about what it meant for her to give her amen to that. Think about what she was surrendering. In the first uh, place, she was surrendering her body to him. Now, ladies, you know better than anybody else what it means for the, for the body, for the body of a woman to bear and to carry and to deliver a child. And when he said to her, you will bear a son, she was surrendering to him her physical body to be the vehicle through which the Messiah would come into the world. But secondly, she was surrendering her reputation. She was giving up. She was entrusting and risking her reputation. Here's why. Because in tiny Nazareth, a village of only three to 400 people, everybody knows everybody. And do you know what everybody knows when everybody knows everybody? When everybody knows everybody, everybody knows everything. And in Nazareth, pure and chaste, Mary will no longer be considered a virgin. Because Gabriel didn't visit the whole town. He didn't go to the village square and announce to the entire town that young Mary, who is now going to be conceived and carrying a child before she's married, this is conceived of the Holy Spirit. She has remained pure and chaste. That announcement wasn't made. And no one was going to believe that this was the Messiah she was carrying. She's risking her reputation. What would her parents think? Thirdly, she's risking her relationship, primarily her relationship with Joseph. I mean, imagine Joseph is away preparing their home. He's working hard every day so that, so that they can, he can complete the home where they're going to live together. And suddenly, he's going to receive the news that his fiance is now pregnant. And you should know, by the way, he didn't believe in the beginning that this was a divine, immaculate conception. It's the entire reason for the text in Matthew 1 telling us that Gabriel went to visit Joseph and said to Joseph, because Joseph was going to call the marriage off, he was going to put her away. No marriage was going to happen. And Gabriel had to go to Joseph and say, Joseph, no, no, it's okay. This child that she's carrying has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now marry her. Imagine this, this 15-year-old girl when Gabriel comes and says to her, you will conceive, she thinks about her body, she thinks about her parents, she thinks about her reputation, she thinks about her relationship with Joseph, and she says, amen. I will surrender to you. So what do you do when God asks you to do the hard thing? What do you do? How do you respond when the life that you're living is a life that you wouldn't have chosen, but God in his sovereignty has seen fit to allow your life to end up down a path that's a difficult road. Are you fighting and resisting and yelling, why me? 
or is your response to God? Amen. This is the voice of surrender. The second thing that she said to him in the voice of surrender was, I am God's servant. Amen. I am God's servant. Verse number 38, she says, be it unto me because of this I am the handmaid of the Lord. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. The word handmaid means I'm the, the slave girl. That's exactly how it's translated, the slave girl or the servant girl. I am the servant of the Lord. And loved ones, hear me closely. This, this attitude of I am the servant of the Lord is not the result of Gabriel's visit. It's the reason for Gabriel's visit. She had already somewhere in her spiritual development, somewhere in her parents teaching her about the Lord and raising her up, there was a point in her life where she had already said, God, I'm yours. God, whatever you want to do with my life, do it. My life belongs to you. I am fully surrendered as your servant forever. And it was that kind of servant's heart that brought the visit from Gabriel and the call of God upon her life. This is not a decision you make in the moment of the call. It's a decision you make before the call ever comes. And here's my challenge to you. Make that your commitment. Say to the Lord today, I am your servant. And God, whatever you want to do with my life, do it. God, take my life. It belongs to you. She said, I am God's servant. How could I resist? How could I argue? How could I say no? My life is his. The third thing that she said in the voice of surrender, she said, amen, I am God's servant. And then lastly, she said, his plan, God's plan for me, whatever it is, is my honor. His plan is my honor. I think we would all agree that God's plan for Mary would change her life forever in ways that she could never even imagine. God's design for Mary's life would demand that every plan that she had for her life be laid aside. That every dream that she thought would be her life be submitted and surrendered to him. That all of her expectations would be laid down at the throne of Almighty God. That it would take a toll on her body, that it would risk her reputation, that it could ruin her relationship with Joseph. She said his plan whatever it is, is my great honor. And that word, honor, keeps showing up in this passage. Look at verse number 28. When Gabriel comes to her, he says, uh, Hail Mary, thou that art highly favored. Verse 30, he says it again, for you have found favor with God. The word favor means honor, great honor. That God has, you have found great grace with him and he has bestowed great honor upon you. Then, the word blessed as well. He says, not only are you favored, but you are blessed. Verse number 28, he says, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are you among women. Among what women? Among which women? Among all women. You are blessed. And in fact, later on in verse number 48, Mary says, I have been blessed above all women of every generation. She said, from henceforth and forever, all generations shall call me blessed. 
in a moment when the plan that God had for Mary's life would cause her to lay down every dream and expectation, hope that she had and risk everything in her life and go down a path that would be difficult to say the least, she said, it is my highest honor to do so. And so this Christmas, I want to encourage you to hear the voice of Mary. It's not a proud voice. It's not an arrogant voice. I believe it's a resolute voice. But maybe with a bit of timidity and some trembling and some fear. That when the hard thing came to her life, her voice said, Amen. I am your servant and it will be my honor to do what you tell me to do. And so whatever it is that God has given you to do, listen to me, whatever your path is, whatever burden it is that you're carrying, whatever, whatever weight it is that's on your shoulders, whatever, whatever course your life has taken and it's created hardships, grief, difficulty, whatever high calling and purpose God has given to you and he's given a purpose to all of us. Whatever it is, here's your answer this Christmas. Are you listening? Here's your answer. Amen. Amen. I'm your servant. It's my privilege to do what you want me to do.